Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I am your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 289, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Victor Chong. Dr. Chong is an example of a clinician who works currently in industry. He talks a little bit about how he transitioned into that role, what he looks for in prospective uh, medical doctor hires to join his practice, and how uh, people who are interested can learn more about industry opportunities. As always, you can find a list of financial disclosures in the episode description. You can also find links in the episode description to go to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. There, you can claim CME credits for this episode and many other podcast episodes. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by Dr. Victor Chong. Dr. Chong is the Global Head of Medicine Retinal Health at Boringer Ingerheim. And he's joining us today uh, from overseas across the Atlantic. Dr. Chong, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Jay. So tell us a little bit about yourself, right? So you're first time in the program. Usually we ask guests, you know, how they ended up doing retina. Give us some background, your education, your, your decision to do ophthalmology, and then get involved in retina. Why, why did you make that leap? Well, that's a quite a long time ago. So um, I uh, went to medical school in Glasgow and some time ago and originally that I went to Glasgow to become a neurosurgeon and some of you know heard about the Glasgow coma scale and also a few hundred miles from home sounds like a good idea and then but again that at that time that you when I was in medical school that I decided to become an ophthalmologist and then actually that I um, you know started uh, my resident my residency in uh, Morfield Eye Hospital and then also my fellowship in Morfield Eye Hospital in London and um, and after that, um, I, uh, my career are very much more a clinician scientist career. And even um, some of my residency that uh, I spend a lot more time in research are rather than a pure uh, residency program and which you are allowed to do so in the UK. Um, and then um, like a lot of the colleagues um, in the UK that I went to um, US yeah, with our, in our city and worked with S. Stone and Greg Hagerman for a couple of years and before kind of returning and to join the faculty um, in London in King's College and then um, and then be, and then moved to um, uh, Oxford and uh, eventually become the head of department uh, in the head of clinical service there and then uh, fast tracking to five years ago that um, I joined the Boringer uh, from Oxford. So let's talk about that transition you know it may be a different it's obviously different country to country uh, and even region to region, depending on the country you're in. But I think that at least here in the U.S., um, I think that there's a lot of curiosity and a lot of lack of knowledge about what an industry job as a physician looks like. Um, so so what does your, your, your day-to-day look like, right? So what do you do, and how is that different than what you were doing when you were at Oxford? Yeah, so... Um... The, the day-to-day look like is, I think that um, just like a lot of jobs that you have some degree of the management side. And, and, and so certainly similar that in Oxford that, um, you know, you have management meeting, uh, which is actually beyond your own department to a certain extent. I think that it still exists. 
And then, um, you know, the uh, obviously instead of seeing patient, um, you would spend a lot of time to, um, you know, designing clinical trial and also to see how the clinical trials are going. So in Boringa, um, uh, over my last five years in Boringa, we had five uh, molecules uh, have moved from the lab uh, to the clinical space. So that those programs that I need to look after and then also design for that. And then similarly that um, uh, we spend a lot of time to uh, identify molecule. So again, uh, my role uh, is also to help my uh, discovery research colleagues to look at potential pathway, potential molecule. So that is also spending time uh, understanding those things. And at the same time that on the other end, I speak that, you know, we do uh, try to understand the market, you know, so like, you know, what will be a wet MD market, uh, what is that med medical need and so on. And so I have dealing with the commercial team, but at the same time, just like all big pharma, that we also try to licensing, licensing in molecule uh, from smaller company. So again, in during the last five years, we have licensed, uh, licensed one technology and two, uh, two molecules from two different companies. So again, obviously we don't license everything that, that, that we look at. So we spend time to, uh, to analyzing the data and decided, you know, uh, which one we want to license. And then also that to look at, um, you know, uh, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> the, the so-called the price for it, you know, obviously so far we are very lucky. Everyone that we want, um, you actually managed to, to license it. No one has said no uh, to our money uh, per se. And, and so, you know, you have kind of multiple aspect that um, in, uh, in the role uh, from the head, uh, uh, from kind of meeting the group point of view that you come really from the discovery research all the way to a potential commercial, despite that our molecule are still in relatively early stage. And those are kind of the more the day-to-day -day job. Um, and occasionally that uh, every program that going to uh, go to agency, then obviously that we need to talk to FDA and you know we have a preparation meeting and so on and so forth. And at the same time that um, you know we have the uh, like my team because we are quite new to uh, retina as a company that we don't have any uh, product. So we have built more than 40 uh, collaboration around the world. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of teams around the world are now working with us to try to collecting data for us, no matter it's from uh, patient sample to retinal imaging uh, to some really functional testing. And so it's kind of like those uh, collaboration uh, are also important. And quite often that, you know, I need to initiate it, but I'm very fortunate that uh, in my team, we have four other retinal specialists. And, um, you know, so they are taking uh, a lot of some of those work when the initiation uh, have been taken place and then they will kind of like, um, you know, move, move on and, and then get, get the job done, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that's that. it's very interesting, you know, because I think that, um, Again, I feel like I talk to younger physicians here, even sometimes middle career physicians, and a lot of them kind of, I think the grass is always greener. They're always saying, you know, I kind of wish I had a, a job in industry. And then you kind of ask them, well, what do you think that would look like? And I think many people just don't have a clear concept of, of what that is. So so let's go to the next point. If you, it, you're you on the side right now where you may be making hiring decisions, right? You may be deciding, okay, we're going to hire another retina specialist or another physician to join our team. You know. Obviously, you'd prefer to have someone who has industry experience, but there are people who, at some point, everyone has zero experience until they have it. 
So when you're evaluating someone who doesn't have, let's say, an industry experience background, what are sort of the attributes you look for that would be evidence that they would be successful in that role? Yeah. Well, in fact, that we actually pretty good at hiring people with no industry experience. Actually, majority of my my team actually come from directly from academia, and so. But the thing that, um, in fact, actually we're hiring right now. We actually have three position uh, currently. Uh, um, uh, uh, two clinical development and one in medical affair. So, so if I say it very briefly, and even a lot of people don't even understand what is the difference between clinical development and what is medical affair. And right. I think that you know, certainly when I first go in, came in, I, I don't understand it. You know, um, and and if I make it more clear or simpler, might be the medical affair is to communicating your data. And then, so as then, um, you know, to help uh, the physician, uh, the, uh, the our potential customer, you can use it that word, our retinal uh, specialist colleagues, that to understand what the data is about and what it means, and then how that you can actually integrate that into your practice. You know, I think that is medical affair, which is closer to a lot of practicing physician because they would probably know that you know, uh, about where they be, they want to do treatment extend or whatever. And then you can actually talk about uh, some of those uh, pros and cons of different uh, kind of uh, methodology and what the clinical trial show and how to explain that. So that's actually easier transition. And however, a lot of those polls actually taken by medical affair, uh, experts, so as we, uh, who had uh, previous um, uh, industry experience, because um, you do need to have a little bit of commercial sense and rightly or wrongly, a drug company do need to sell drugs and to, to providing clinical development money. So for physicians that who uh, are, had a bit of more research academic background and would probably come in that um, in, um, in to actually to move a molecule uh, to patient. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, that is, uh, you know, it's more exciting in a way and which is actually something that I enjoy to do most, you know, to really to bring a new molecule um, to, to the clinical space. However, that, you know, most clinical, most early molecule fail. So you need to have the mentality is that you can spend two and a half years working extremely hard and then actually get the patient the molecule and then the molecule does nothing. And then again, you know, uh, the failure rate obviously is very, very high. And in fact, that only about 7% of molecule actually get to phase one would ever eventually hit the market. So, so, so something that, you know, the mentality is that, you know, you, we are doing it uh, to expanding science, to bring a new molecule and everyone hope that they will bring a Lucentis or the like, you know, into the world. And I think that will actually completely transforming patient's life. However, that failure rate is important for people to accept that you could work, work three years, four years, and then actually go nowhere. So, so that kind of uh, set is important. But again, in my team, I make it very clear that you know, even if the molecule fail, we actually would be able to collect enough data, actually that we can understand why it, the molecule fail, and also we can learn from it. So it's just that even if it's a failure, is actually not a true failure. That is not a true waste of time. Because I think one of the disappointing that uh, people might think that it could be a completely waste of time. So, so that is important uh, um, uh, feature. And another option is for people to come in um, to, uh, to so-called late development. And again, 
that is not that is also quite common in big pharma that sometimes that they um, they license the molecule from someone else and we already have shown uh, some clinical success. So I use the example and uh, might be that um, you know uh, some some years ago that uh, when Ilea was Regeneron uh, in in their phase uh, three and just about to start the phase three and then Bayer uh, bought the uh, right outside the U.S. And then uh, you basically uh, run the phase three. And again, uh, it's, uh, it's important that you are uh, able to make sure that uh, you run the phase three and phase three failure is the biggest scene in big pharma. Mm -hmm. And But you also obviously remember like for Vista have failed, uh, anti-faculty have failed and those big failure, you know, uh, are career damaging, you can right. argue. So, so you had a different as different stage uh, of um, of entry uh, to the industry. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like medical affairs, like you said, and just to kind of summarize for our listeners, kind of more steady. You know, you're you're it, not so much the highs and lows. Drug development over time, but you can have very high highs with successes. You can have high highs with a failure that's early that teaches you something. But you can have very low lows, like you said, if you have a phase three drug that fails. There's a lot of money and time invested, and sometimes a substantial portion of your career invested into that. Um, but it offers the opportunity in drug development, again, to hit those higher highs, not to diminish what medical affairs people do. I think it's a different sort of importance in terms of communication to colleagues, but again, very different sort of jobs. And I would argue probably most clinicians in practice, medical affairs is probably a more natural transition, as you said drug development usually is going to be someone who maybe had more of a research background or has some more of an interest right in, in or has had some sort of ex basic lab experience or translational research experience yeah yeah i think that's absolutely true i think that you know when um when i was asked when, when i tried to hire someone you know and i actually also want to know where they want to go in five years time or ten years time it's just like all jobs right so in terms of medical affair, obviously you can stay in medical affair and then also that you can move into the so-called commercial world that you're kind of selling drugs and, and, and being medical director in the country to supporting how to, drug, how to sell the drugs and so on. And, and a lot of clinicians done extremely well that in fact, most of the chief executive or, you know, are, are really um, uh, coming from the commercial side. They are not really uh, medic, even they are medic, but their career are much more on the commercial side because end of the day that is actually what make money for the for the um you know for the company right so so i think that is certainly one direction on the other hand that if you are thinking about that again something uh, say that oh, i actually want to uh, form the, the next, next regeneron and i'm using that that might be an example you know uh, because people know about it and obviously that you know if you want to form the next regeneron you know, then, um, you know, you probably need to do early clinical development, you know, and then again, uh, a smaller biotech tend to prefer to have people who have experience and big pharma is actually probably the people that will be willing to take some risks. And then also there is a lot more people to teach you how to do things. And then for you to come in, but obviously that you do need to have some understanding of the research background, as you say, rather than the, the kind of the standard uh, physician, if I put it that way, it might be not fair. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, you could, you know, make the next Regeneron, 
and you could argue that you know the Regeneron CEO, you know, when he first started the company, uh, took him about 13 years to be fair, you know, to make something like 400 million in the first year when Alia was launched. So again, you know, uh, I don't think even um, you know a big big CEO for a big farmer will make 400 million, right? right so right. again, it's not all about money, but again, you know, you want to build a a company you know, and, and so on, then medical affair and commercial are not necessarily the place to do it, you know, and for a physician, because uh, most of those uh, commercial in a smaller company tend to also for marketing from, from people from business, because again, what you tend to do is actually to sell your molecule when you get to phase two and sell your molecule to, to a big farmer, and then you can then come out and then either you set up another company then you just release in your yacht you know i think those are the kind of uh, things to think about yeah it's interesting yeah it's it's funny that you bring that up right so like yeah a smaller company maybe is not as incentivized to have a medical professional because at that stage because the goal is not to get it to medical professionals at that point because it's not commercially available um yeah so so let's kind of finish on this last topic right so we talked a little bit about what you look for in people who may want a job and you talked a little bit about the types of jobs people can do. Mm-hmm. You know, what about, let's go younger, right? What about the people who are in training, residents or fellows, even medical students? Mm-hmm. Some of them express interest in this. What sort of advice would you have for them, right? Is it better for someone like that to leave their training and work for a few years before doing this? Or like you did, go to a university for some time, pursue research before doing that transition? Is it possible to go straight into one of these jobs and out of training and be successful? What would be kind of your advice? Yeah, I, I, I think that um, it's, it's a difficult situation, I think. You know, I mean, like there is certainly some people um, are so-called partly trained and then go into industry. And, uh, but you have no way to virtually very difficult to return. So imagine that you're happy for your residency you then go in and then, you know, um, you, you might lost your spot on your residency, you know, and so, so um, I would probably suggest that that uh, at least in the US perspective that because the residency relatively short time, you know, finish your residency and, and then you can consider doing that between your residency and your fellowship if you wanted to. And, but to be fair that, you know, um, the, the argument goal is that you, you, you probably doesn't need to be in practice for 10 to 15 years before you move the industry. And you could move the industry when you have practiced for a couple of years. So I post your, after your fellowship and you understand a bit of the business side of, 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 of practice as well. And then you really know that and how to make decision. And you're still relatively young in the career and you can go out and then try out for a couple of years. And if you don't like it, and then you go back to practice. So, so in fact, uh, quite a few people done that, you know, and so, so I think that is probably the better place. And for people like myself, who are kind of like, um, you know, almost um, very senior, and then go into big pharma and head the group are unusual rather than the norm. You know, I think that is not common. But again, um, we seem to be quite a few big farmer now uh, interested in that idea. And then, um, you know, to really to bring in the strategy part and the leadership skill 
and then um, to support uh, people like myself on the drug development side. But for, for too young going in, then you will be probably the same as a pharmacy graduate or a, 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 a science graduate. And then you don't really, you know, that the MD doesn't really uh, give you the extra premium, usually they're associated uh, in the pharma. MD tend to get paid more and can to progress faster in even in the industry. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And like you talked about, there's a different sort of advancement and higher highs, maybe again, in that position, taking maybe a little more risk in some ways than somebody in practice or in a university job. So um, Dr. Chang, thanks so much. I re really appreciate you taking the time and our listeners, I'm sure appreciate the perspective. Hopefully you're all doing okay in the United Kingdom, life sort of returning to normal or still a little bit different. Yeah. We are doing pretty well. I think that more than 50% of the population have been vaccinated. So obviously, we, are, we we medics have been vaccinated very early on as well. But I think that uh, we are doing well. We are starting to open up slowly, you know. Um, so we are getting back to normal more and more. And I would assume that once things are more normal, does your job involve a lot of travel? Or do these jobs typically involve a lot of traveling? Yeah, travel for us is by choice rather than uh, a necessity. Mm -hmm. And I like to travel because I like to go to meeting, talk to people. And, and you know how it's like that, you know, when someone presents something, you really want to get some reaction and also try to understand a uh, thing. And again, you know, uh, a lot of us in this circuit for a long time that, you know, we've been giving talks all the time at the same time that to kind of have a bunch of friends that who are the bunch who go to almost all meetings. So, but again, it's not a necessity. You know, I think that, um, you know, um, um, most of my team that, you know, it's only, it's only really when they want to travel, you know, and uh, rather than you have to travel. And my team obviously have the part of them in the US, part of them in Germany. So they do need to come over to headquarters probably twice a year, but that is uh, the, probably the virtually only necessity. But going to conferences and so on uh, are your choice and going to visit investigator you know, and so on, uh, also that your choice and um, it is more kind of a friendly thing rather than a necessity. Well, hopefully um, we'll be back to a more normal circuit soon and see you on the road at one of our meetings here. We have kind of a slate of meetings that are potentially going to start in the fall into next mm -hmm. spring. So hopefully as vaccination gets more common across the world, yeah. uh, we'll be back on seeing each other at normal meetings. So Dr. Chong, thanks again for your time. And uh, have a great rest of your day. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. As always, you can find this episode and many other episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 289 episodes are there sorted by category. In addition, you can find links to subscribe and receive updates on the latest episodes. There are also links in the... Um, Apple Store and Android Store, so you can subscribe on your mobile device. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at Red Podcast. And to contact us, click on the contact us link on our website or email us at retinapodcast at gmail.com. Many thanks to Dr. Victor Chong for joining. Thanks to Drs. Angela Chang, Mike Vinacasa, and Louis Kai for producing this episode and the accompanying social media. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here each week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off.
feeling? This is straight from the cutter's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.